John chapter 5, John chapter 5, verses 1 through 30. Um, we're going to read 30 verses. Um, if you didn't read your Bible last week, we're about to make up for it right now. Um, once you got it, let's get up together. John chapter 5, starting in verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem the sheep, by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which is five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there for a long time, he said to him, You want to be healed? A sick man answered him and said, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed and took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews, the religious leaders, uh, said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath, and it's not law for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, It was the man who healed me. He's the one who said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed didn't know uh, who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. And afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you're well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. I love Jesus' answer. Jesus said, uh, my father's working until now and I'm working. And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever doesn't honor the Son doesn't honor the Father who sent him. Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He doesn't come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father who is life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he's the Son of Man. Don't marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Today I want to get a glimpse of glory out of Jesus' statement, get up. When he told that man, get up, he gave us a, a bright, radiant glimpse of glory. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for being here among your people. Thank you for life with you. We need you to open our eyes today. We need you to open our heart. We need you to give us a greater knowledge of you and faith in you. May it be so. Amen. Amen.
1950, um, E.M. Kaufman put down $5,000 and started a pharmaceutical uh, business right out um, in his basement. Uh, it kind of got off to an average start, but he hit with this uh, medicine called Oscal. And he rode that wave of Oscal for the next 30 years. And over the next 30 years, he added successful medicine on top of successful medicine on top of successful business strategy to where by the um, late 1980s, this $5,000 investment had now just passed $1 billion in sales. Um, EM's not a... Not, not just a legend in Kansas City because he was a big business guy. EM was also a legend in Kansas City because of the way he benefited the people who worked for him. Um, I'm pretty close to a man just south of Kansas City who worked for EM. And Jerry, he said that when EM hired him, EM sat him down from a table and said, Jerry, if you stick it out with me, I'll make you a millionaire. And Jerry's not the only one that EM told this to. EM made this promise to, to hundreds of people. And EM didn't just make this promise, this promise proved true to where today the Kansas City Star predicts that there are at least 300 millionaires in Kansas City because they stuck it out with EM Bounds. Uh, Those 300 people learned that patience pays off. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 36, it says to the church, what you need right now is patient endurance so you can do the will of God and receive all the promises he has for you. But when it comes to Jesus, even greater than E.M. Kaufman, patience pays off. Uh, This is my application real early. This is the point of me preaching today is I want you to, here it is, be patient. Uh, I want you to be patient when things don't seem as if you think they ought to seem. I want you to be patient when you see evil running amok all over the world. I want you to be patient when you're questioning and confused. I want you to be patient. Uh, the reason I'm giving you this message of being patient is because I believe that's what God is would call us to um, based off of this text. So what I want to what I want to do is I want to walk through this text. Then after walking through this text, I'm going to connect this call to patience to what Jesus shows us about himself. Sounds good. Now, remember, we're looking at the signs of Jesus and what's a sign. It's an action of Jesus that says something about Jesus. So first, I want to look at this action of Jesus. Uh, so we pick up with Jesus and he's walking into the city. Um, it's a Sabbath. It's a it's a weekend. The Sabbath is when all um, Jews in the city, they stopped doing their normal work. But this ain't just any other weekend. It, John says this is a festival weekend. This is a feast weekend. It's, it's a holiday weekend. Uh, think Marian days in college in uh, Carthage. All kinds of people have just come into Jerusalem for this holiday weekend. So Jesus and his whole boys, they're walking across the the city walls and it says that there are paralyzed people, lame people, blind people. John says that the city walls look like an ER waiting room. They look like a clinic waiting room. There are people with personal problems all over the city walls. And it says right off the side of these city walls, there's a pool. This ain't just any pool. This is a special pool. The Jews, they believed that angels would come down and they'd put their fingers in the pool and they'd swirl it. And whenever the angels swirled the pool, whoever was first to get in got a supernatural healing. So that's why all these people with problems are next to the pool. So Jesus and his boys, they're walking. And it says Jesus sees a man who'd been paralyzed and invalid for 38 years. And Jesus had to have known this man uh, previously because John tells us that Jesus knew he'd been there for just as long. And so Jesus looks at this man and he says, bro, do you want to be healed? 
Jesus asked this man a yes or no question, and this man didn't answer the yes or no question. He gave Jesus every reason why it wouldn't work. You can you can see the pessimism in his mind. You can see the hopelessness. You can see the defeat that he's living in when he says, I've got nobody to throw me in that pool. And when I try to crawl over there, someone else gets in front of me. So Jesus, disregarding the fact that this man didn't answer his yes or no question, he says, get up, pick up that bed and go home. And this man who hadn't walked in 38 years is now trotting through Jerusalem with his bed on his back. Did you see what I saw? Did you see Jesus bypass all kinds of barriers to get that man back on his feet? So so first, Jesus, he bypasses a, a barrier of religious tradition. The, the, the religious leaders, they came up with all kinds of definitions for what work was and what work wasn't to where it was almost impossible to walk more than a mile on the Sabbath day. And they definitely didn't think somebody should be healed on the Sabbath. They thought healing was work that wasn't allowed. But Jesus bypassed that religious tradition and healed the man anyways. Uh, did you see did you see Jesus bypass superstition? The Jews had this superstitious tradition that said there's something in that water, just like Carrie Underwood said. They thought, that's a joke. Ha ha ha. I laugh at my own jokes. <laughs> and they thought this man's only hope to be healed was to get in that water. But Jesus bypassed that superstitious and healed that man with his word without the water. He bypasses the superstition. Jesus even bypassed this man's bad attitude. Jesus asked this man if he wanted to be healed. And this man didn't exemplify the great faith of all the other people in the New Testament who who believe Jesus and are open to Jesus. This man gives Jesus every reason why he wasn't. Jesus bypassed that bad attitude and healed the man anyways. We saw Jesus bypass barrier after barrier after barrier to heal that man. What we just saw was the sovereignty of Jesus. Here's how the Dictionary of Bible Themes defines sovereignty. The Dictionary of Bible Themes says the fact that God is free and able to do all that he wills. That's what sovereignty is. Uh, Easton's Bible Dictionary says that sovereignty is God's absolute right to do all things according to his own good pleasure. We see Jesus exercising sovereignty. I wrote it down like this earlier this week. Jesus has the ability and authority to do all that he wants to do. And that's what we see him do in this moment right here. So I want you to look down at an imaginary chessboard in your lap right there in front of you. You got one chess piece that could only make an L shape. There are lines it can't cross and moves it can't make. You got another chess piece that can only go diagonally. There are lines it can't cross and moves it can't make. You got some chess pieces that can't go backwards. There's lines it can't cross and moves they can't make. But you got the queen. The queen, she can cross almost any line. She can make almost any move. While all of these other pieces are limited, they have lines they can't cross and moves they can't make. The queen can make almost any move and cross almost any line. Now I want you to look up from that chessboard and look up back up into reality. We all have, our our life experience is a pawn, a knight at best. There are lines we can't cross in nature, time, space, age, other people's wills. There are moves we can't make, but our Jesus, the King of Kings, he doesn't have any lines he can't cross. He can make any move. Sovereignty means Jesus can make any move. He he existed outside of time, outside of a space and before time, the King can make any move. 
He, this, this, this timeless, eternal Jesus outside of space stepped into time and space through the womb of a woman without the help of a man. He can make any move. This king looked at a can of water, called it wine. The water responded and became wine. The king can make any move. This is the king who's, who, who he said, I'm, I'm laying my life down. You're going to lay me in a tomb. And he picked it back up himself. This king can make any move. So to those of us who might have lost hope on anything good from God in this situation that you're in or another situation, his question to you is what he asked Abraham in Genesis 17. He says, I'm God Almighty. Is anything too hard for me? I like the original translation. It says, is anything too wonderful for me? Is anything too big for me? I know the doctor said you can't get over cancer. You can't have kids yourself. But is anything too big for me? I know you've been having these problems in your mental and your emotional, and it seems like there's no no salvation for you outside of this. Is anything too hard for me? I know you've been walking around with this sin from season through season, and you can't see yourself without it, but is anything too hard for me? The question is rhetorical. The answer is obvious. No. I'm not trying to feed this baseless optimism just in a good future just because. I'm not trying to feed our confidence that we as people can pull together and make something happen. I'm trying to feed your faith in the fact that Jesus can do anything and everything he sets himself out to do. And my prayer is that we as a people believe that Jesus can do what he wants. And I take it even further. My prayer is that we as a people believe that Jesus is doing what he wants right now. Um, uh, the, the, the Hebrew people, they had this song, one of my favorite songs, Psalm 115, verse 3. The line goes, the nations ask, where is your God? And we answer, our God is in heaven right now doing what he wants. Uh, that, that's a sermon we ought to preach to ourselves. That's a sermon we've got to preach to each other and to the world because there are going to be times where the question, where is God? comes up. I've been praying and I've pressed. Where is God? Things are getting hard. Where is God? And the sermon I preach to me, the sermon I preach to you, the sermon I preach to the world is my God is in heaven doing as he pleases. Uh, um, 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 Say to someone next to you, he's doing what's good to him. He's doing what's good to him. When, When I'm pressed, he's doing what's good to him. When I'm stressed, he's doing what seems good to him. When I'm confused, he's doing what seems good to him. When I'm impatient, he's doing what seems good to him. He's always doing what seems good to him. Can I give you another perspective on this sovereign act of Jesus? So notice that this man didn't ask Jesus to come over. He wasn't looking for Jesus. He wasn't waiting for Jesus. Jesus initiated that situation. Fast forward to verse 14. After Jesus heals this man, he says, look, you're healed. Don't sin anymore so that nothing worse will happen to you. There's a scholar I really like who thinks that that statement implies that this man was in a bad situation because of his sin. Not all bad situations are caused by sin, but there are bad situations caused by sin. And this man was probably in one of them. So Jesus, 
approaches this sinner, initiates interactions with this sinner, heals him and pushes him to holiness. Jesus initiated some sort of salvation encounter with this sinner. In fact, that's what Jesus does. Jesus initiates salvation encounters with sinners. That's what happened to my homeboy, Saul. Saul, he had just left the courthouse and he got a he had a warrant in the hand. A warrant that, that gave him the ability to make no-knock entries into any house he could find a Christian, pull him out, put him on trial, and put him to death. So here Saul is on his way down the road going to get him some more Christians. Saul wasn't thinking about Jesus, but Jesus was thinking about Saul. Saul wasn't running towards Jesus, but Jesus approached Saul. Saul's heart was hell-bent, but Jesus gripped it and made it his own. And now Saul lived the rest of his life With Jesus. Why? Because Jesus had the ability to save Saul. Jesus had the authority to save Saul. So guess what Jesus did? He saved Saul. Jesus sovereignly saved Saul. Listen to me, friends. We're all saved like Saul. We're all saved like Saul. We're all saved like Saul. All of us were going our own way, and Jesus initiated that encounter and turned us back around. We're all saved like Saul. The other day, me and my wife, um, I got to confess. Um, so this might be the dirt you want to bring up on me about this eldership thing. Um, I still listen to rap sometimes. Um, so me and my wife, we're, we're driving down the street yesterday listening to uh, this rapper. And he mentioned Jesus in his song, which is totally out of characteristic for him. Thought that would never happen. And my wife said, is he a, is, is he a Christian? I was like, oh, no, he's not a Christian. He's a long shot because mid-sentence, Jesus got a hold of me and said, I sovereignly save. I have the ability to save. I've got the authority to save. So I'm going to save. There ain't no such thing as a long shot salvation when it comes to Jesus. So, friends, listen to me. You might have a family member who seems like they're far off. You might have a friend who seems like they're long gone. Ain't no such thing as a long shot with Jesus. He's not waiting on them to change their mind about church. He's not waiting on them to change their worldview. He's not waiting on them to get their act together. He doesn't need them to do anything. No, Jesus will grip them right where they are. He saves all like so. And for us Christians, because he saves us all like Saul, we ought to think about this life like Saul thinks about his life. Uh, Later in in Ephesians, after he meditated on his own story, he said, it was by grace I was saved. So that no one may boast. In Romans, he says, salvation is not about human effort. It's about God's mercy. Saul, Saul, he understood that I'm on a ground that should constantly produce gratitude because I didn't put me here. God put me here. I'm always thanking God because my salvation ain't about me. I didn't save me. I didn't change me. My response was just that. It was a response to the work Christ already did. So I'm always thanking God because when I was headed on my own way, he picked me up. He turned me around. He placed me on that solid ground. That is his finished work. I'm always thankful. I'm always thinking Jesus He sovereignly saved this man, but it gets better. So so Jesus, he explains that he wasn't the only one involved in this work. The the, the religious leaders, they start chirping. They're like, you can't save people. You can't heal people on the Sabbath. 
And Jesus said, it's not just me doing it. My father's working, so I'm working. This is the first of four statements in that 30 verses that we read where Jesus, he communicates partnership with the father. Those four statements begin this theme that runs throughout the book of John, where Jesus constantly makes claims of oneness and unity with the father. Notice how Jesus describes unity in this passage. Jesus seems to tell us that unity includes working together towards a common goal. Jesus is unified with the father because they're both working together towards a common goal. So I played on a whole lot of basketball teams throughout my life. And not a lot of them were called unified. Um, um, some of my basketball teams, they weren't called unified just because we were all on the same court together. Others of my basketball teams, they weren't called unified just because we had on the same jersey. The ones that were called unified were the ones where all of us gave ourselves completely to the collective cause of the team. You see, you didn't have one homeboy over here throwing up threes, trying to drop 50 points just because there was some girl in the stands. You didn't have someone over here trying to just look good. You didn't have someone over here doing their own thing. No, all of us, we gave ourselves to the one goal of the team, and that's what unity was. I didn't know in the 7th, 8th, ninth, 10th, 11th, 12th grade into college that, that that basketball team was teaching me theology. I didn't know that they were teaching me what Jesus is teaching us in this text, which means unity isn't just proximity. Unity isn't just similarity. Unity also includes cooperation. Jesus isn't unified with the Father just because they have proximity, meaning they're both in heaven, which they are. Jesus isn't unified with the Father just because they're similar, meaning they're both divine, which they are. Jesus is unified with the Father because they both work together towards a common goal. So let me give us all a relationship tip. Christian, you're not unified with the Father unless you're working together with him towards his goal. You live a life doing your own thing, unchecked by the Father, without any input by the Father. That's that's practical division. Husband and wives, you're not unified in that house until y'all two are working together towards a common goal. Christ Church, we're not unified until we're working together towards a common goal. Look, I like doing the meeting changes and it made a whole bunch of people come back. So I love being in the same room, but this ain't the end game. I love similarity in that we all uh, affirm the same beliefs and worship the same Jesus, but that's not the end goal. Jesus' vision when he prayed that Father make them unified and make them one as we are one was that we all would be going for the same thing together. So my prayer for us is that all of us play one part in one purpose. You don't have your own thing. That thing you're doing is a part of the big thing. We're not all doing our own things around here. We want to constantly and continually grow into all of us having a part to play in one common purpose. What is Jesus doing? Jesus, he he sovereignly healed this man. He sovereignly initiated this salvation interaction with the sinner. And he said he did it in unity with his father. So that's what he did. 
Now I want to move on. Josiah, you like this sermon, boy. <laughs> now I want to move on to what this means. So, so, so what, what, what happened was the, the, the sovereign salvation encounter. Verses 17 to 30, Jesus expounds on what that means. I'm not going to go verse by verse, so I'll just give you the answer right now. Jesus says that this one act of sovereignty points to two greater acts of sovereignty. And the two greater acts of sovereignty are what occupy verses 17 to 30. They're two big things. So I want to point out those two greater acts of sovereignty that Jesus is saying he will carry out. Here's the first one. Write this one down. Jesus sovereignly, Jesus will sovereignly give life. Jesus will sovereignly give life. Did you catch the life-giving statements and claims throughout that? He said, just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so I do. And I have life in myself. And people will hear my voice and come out of the tombs. People will hear my voice and they'll have eternal life. Jesus is saying, I give life sovereignly. Now, there are two times that Jesus gives life. Jesus is telling us he gives life today and he'll give life tomorrow. So so Jesus says, I'll give life today. Jesus's definition for the life that he gives today is unlike any definition of life that a human could have thought up of. Jesus says, those who hear my voice today will receive eternal life. John 17, 3, Jesus tells us that eternal, eternal life is knowing the Father. Jesus gives life today by giving us relationship with the Father. Jesus, he talks about giving life tomorrow. Jesus said, there's a day coming where where those who are in the grave will hear my voice and come out. He's talking about the resurrection where all who've died and been burned or buried or whatever you do with bodies, Jesus is going to come back and he's calling everybody out of the grave. So he'll give life tomorrow by getting people out of the grave. He'll give life today by giving us a relationship with God. He'll give life tomorrow by getting us out of the grave. And he says he does it with his voice. Y'all want a sneak peek of uh, my Easter sermon? Uh, y'all get it all today. You don't got to come next month. Uh, so, so John chapter 11, Jesus, he tells us, uh, John tells us about Jesus walking into the hometown of one of his best friends. And this ain't any normal visit. This is a visitation to his best friend's burial site. So Jesus, he gets to the side of the tomb and, and he, he walks past a few grieved family members, a few people pretty mad at him. So he gets by him. He gets up to the tomb and he looks into the tomb. Then he looks up to the sky and he says, Lazarus, come out. And this man who'd been laid down, tied up in that tomb for four days, just walked out on his own four feet, two feet. I don't know. Maybe he had four feet. The Bible doesn't say you don't. <laughs> it's theological conjectures. Jesus, he, he called this man out of the tomb into life. I told y'all earlier that we all get saved like Saul. Now I'm telling you right now, Jesus gives us all life like Lazarus. Jesus calls us all out of tombs into life. And there he'll call us out of a tomb today, um, the tomb which is being dead to God and to life with God. And he'll call us out of the tomb tomorrow, which is being dead to just life forever. And because he uh, gives us life, because he takes us out of the tomb, that shapes our whole view of things. It shapes how I view today. 
Because he gave me life with God today, I can say life is good today. I've got the good of heaven today. God is what makes heaven good. I don't have to wait until the by and by to get the blessing of heaven. I have the blessing of heaven right here below on earth. I've got God today. So in some sense, in some form, in some fashion, in every season, life is always good because I got my God. So that's how I see today, but also how I see tomorrow. We don't look at death the same way the world looks at death. The world looks at death as a period. That's why they're running from it. I'm not saying we chase death, but I'm also not saying we do everything we can to avoid death. Because we don't see death as a period in our story. Death is a comma. Death is a doorway. Death, death is a nap. And when we wake up, we'll, we'll, we'll wake up to perfection. We'll wake up to newness. We'll wake up to, to the Father's face. We, we rejoice and we boast over the grave because it's lost its power. It's lost its sting. Jesus has completely taken it and redeemed it and made it something for his own purposes. Our life should always be shaped. What's the song we sing? What's the truth we sing? Christ is risen from the dead. And he's trampling down death by death. And to all of those in the grave, that's you and me, friend. What's he doing? He's giving life today and tomorrow. So he says he, he'll sovereignly give life. And here's the second one. He'll sovereignly judge. He'll sovereignly judge. Jesus, he says, there's a day coming when I'll call him out of the tombs and those who've done good to the resurrection of life and those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I like that second part because Jesus is saying there's going to be a day that I deal with evil. When I was 12, 13, 14, 15, um, and my mother and aunts would would go to work, they'd make me the babysitter over all of my um, younger cousins. So it was me and my younger cousins at my house, uh, my mama's house together eight hours a day during the summertime. Um, I used to terrorize those boys. Um, I mean, bad bad, lock them out of the house, chase them around with knives, uh, uh, foam at the mouth, make it look like I'm demon-possessed, because ain't no other way to ch- uh, scare a church kid in the early 2000s than act like you're demon-possessed. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm terrorizing these boys. And after a while, they'd had enough of it. So, so one of them, he called my mom at work, snitch on me. Uh, and he didn't have the phone on speakerphone, but I still heard my mama's voice from across the other side of the room through the phone saying, wait till I get home. So we waited. And here I am. 13, 14 years uh, later to confirm that there was, in fact, a moment when that front door did swing wide open. Uh, my mother did rush through those doors and my um, backside and my heart were dealt with for all of the evil that I'd done that day. Jesus' message to us Christians when we see evil running all wild in the world is wait till I get back. He's saying just wait till I get back. Because right now I know you're looking out and you see evil as if it's unchecked and unnoticed, but wait until I get back. 
I know right now you're looking out into the world and you see adults who who children are supposed to trust, but instead they're exploiting children and taking care of children as they want. I know you look out and you see, see, see people with societal power and privileges and all kinds of things, using all of that to press down on others. I know you see people snatching the lives of babies out of the stomachs and the streets and you look at all that evil and you say, what is happening? And Jesus says, wait till I get back. Now look at all of that and it's easy to get my head down. And the moment I put my head down, heaven reaches down and picks my head back up because there is a day when my king is coming back and he's completely dealing with evil and it will completely be eradicated, all ending in the evil one being thrown into a pit of fire. He says, wait till I get back. Jesus, he he sovereignly gives life. He sovereignly Judges. The reason he can sovereignly give life and judges is because of what he went through himself. It was on the cross of Christ that Jesus gave his life and came under the judgment of the Father for the sins of humanity. And after he died, they laid him down into a tomb. But while he was in that tomb, the Father looked down and he judged Jesus as righteous. Judge Jesus is holy. Judge Jesus is worthy. So he gave him that life back and picked him back up. And that Jesus who was in the tomb is now on the throne sovereignly exercising this right to give power or to give life and judge. And he says, those who hear my word right now and believe, you you pass from judgment and come into life. What's the word of Jesus? That he he's God's king who came, died, rose and reigns and he's coming back. And he says, you pass from judgment. Friends, all of us at one point were scheduled to come into Christ's courtroom. And he says, when you believe in me, I'll pronounce you guilty before the trial even starts. He says, you believe in me, I'll, I'll consider you, I mean, pronounce you innocent before the trial even starts. That's a false gospel. Pretty important part, you're right. <laughs> That's why you didn't respond. (laughs) He says, you believe in me and I'll pronounce you innocent before the trial even starts. Christian, this is where patience comes in. With E.M. Kaufman, uh, the people who were patient, they benefited from him being a billionaire. Christians, those of us who are patient, we we benefit from our king being sovereign. When we patiently wait, we will see him sovereignly work out his good purposes in any situation. When we patiently wait and endure through this life, this is the message of the New Testament, and stick with Jesus, we will see a day with him forever. When we patiently wait uh, through evil and don't get discouraged and don't give up, we will see him deal with evil. When we patiently wait, we benefit from all of the good things that come with him being sovereign. Christ Church, this is our this is our call. This is our commitment. It's patience. We're sticking with him. Sticking with him for the next year. Sticking with him for the next five years. Sticking with him for the next 10 years. Sticking with him for the next 25 years. Sticking with him for the next 50 years. However long it takes for him to come back, we're in it for the long game. Because we know at the end that patience will pay off. What's our glimpse? He's he's sovereign. And he'll sovereignly give life. He'll sovereignly judge. And we'll see all that with patience.